she became a Christian through effectively through psychedelic drugs. So you've got these kind of professor, academic, intellectual arguments who sort of then had an encounter. Whereas for her, she said, I trusted Jesus in a way I had never trusted acid or yoga or meditation because he was a person. always incredible when you hear different stories of people coming to faith, of going from atheism to Christianity or whatever religion it might be, and then asking kind of the question, what can we learn from it? What can we glean from this in our own kind of attempt in evangelism and our own desires to engage those around us with the truth of Christianity? And so that's going to be a little bit of the conversation that we're having today based on a book uh, edited by Alistair McGrath called Coming to Faith Through Dawkins, telling the stories of 12 Christians who came really to faith in Christianity because of the work of Richard Dawkins. And that might sound weird to you because Richard Dawkins is a famous atheist arguing that Christianity is false, but it's actually these ideas. And as they were reading and engaging with the thoughts of Dawkins that caused them to start investigating religious claims and starting to see the truth in that. So we're going to be talking a little bit about their stories and what we can learn from it. Joining me to do this is Ruth Jackson. Ruth is a producer, presenter, and a youth specialist for Premier Christian Radio's Unbelievable Show, uh, which was hosted for a long time by Justin Brierley and was just recently on a show talking about his birth, a surprising uh, his book, A Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God. Uh, Ruth also presents the C.S. Lewis podcast with Alistair McGrath and also hosts the Unapologetic podcast, where she interviews, like I do, leading apologists, theologians, evangelists, and scholars to help Christians understand, defend, and share the Christian faith unapologetically. So, Ruth, thanks for joining me uh, this evening for you, this morning for me. <laughs> oh, it's a pleasure to be here. It's very strange being on the other side of the microphone, but let's see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. I feel the same way when whenever I get asked to do an interview, which is very rare. It's like, oh, yeah, now I get to uh, answer you. some questions. <laughs> okay, there we go. <laughs> um, awesome. So, so th- really, this book and and so you've uh, you work alongside Alistair McGrath. He's edited this book, compiled these stories. You've talked to a lot of the uh, contributors, interviewed some of them, and I'll put some of those links in the description here on YouTube as well, but kind of, uh, kind of what maybe, uh, kind of birthed this book, kind of what was the idea behind it or, or what kind of wanted, you know, cause these people when they kind of come out and start sharing their stories of how they came to faith through Dawkins. Yeah. So, um, Alison McGrath is one of the editors. There's another guy called Dennis Alexandra, uh, Alexander. They're both, um, sort of very prolific scientists, amazing theologians as well. And basically over time, over, I, I think it was years and years, they would be at academic conferences, at science conventions, and people would start talking to them about their stories and about how they came to faith. And both Alistair and Dennis noticed that the kind of commonality in a lot of these stories was that actually it was via the new atheists that these guys had encountered faith. So a lot of it was Richard Dawkins, some of them it was Hitchens, Sam Harris, and these people had found themselves reading and really engaging and being incredibly um, engaged with the new atheist movement. And through the new atheist movement had effectively found Christian apologetics or had begun to kind of see some of the arguments fall down and think, what are the alternatives? And effectively they had each in their own different way come to faith through Dawkins. And so I think they sort of had this idea of let's try and see how many stories we can find like this. I don't know whether they had a book as the idea, but as more and more stories came in, it became clear that there was definitely enough to write a book. And and there's 12 stories in this book, but um, there are so many more people who were... 
who had similar things. And, and Alistair said, actually, when I was interviewing that, that a lot of the people who didn't want to be in the book were quite prolific scientists and, and for completely fair enough reasons, didn't want to have their story in the public sphere because of the work they do within the science remit. Yeah. But just, you know, I guess for every story in here, for, for those 12 stories, there's probably hordes more people for oh, yeah. whom that was their story. So yeah, really yeah. interesting. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it was fascinating because just the other day, a friend of mine was preaching. Uh, he had a, a lot of kind of apologetics in the sermon. And so I kind of made a comment afterwards. I said, Hey, you know, I noticed there's a lot of apologetics in that sermon. He goes, well, yeah, you know, he goes, I kind of came to faith through apologetics. It was really kind of seeing the work of Dawkins and these atheists rise up and then reading Christian apologists that kind of really helped me grow deeper and understand the Christian faith. And I was like, well, that's fascinating because I just agreed to do an interview with Ruth Jackson on this very topic. And so it's definitely not just these 12, but there are a lot of other stories out there uh, of, of really you know, maybe this is a slightly different point, but I, I often think about this uh, when 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 Christians ask, like, well, why doesn't God do more miracles? Why isn't there like, or, and it's like, or why don't we see? I guess no, the other side of it. Why is there not as much like demonic activity? And in, in one sense, like an answer that I've often responded with is like, well, if the, if the Satan shows up like in really kind of demonic ways, it will convince a country that there is this supernatural world that's convinced currently that there is not a supernatural world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it will got, it will start to get people thinking. And so like Satan in one sense, maybe is being strategic and like holding back and not doing a whole lot because a bunch of people are just kind of convinced of, you know, naturalism and non-supernaturalism. Um, it almost seems like this is similar where there's a lot of people not really thinking about this stuff. And then all of a sudden new atheists started flooding the market with books and it caused a lot of people to start thinking about the religious question again, leading some to Christianity. Is there maybe like, do you kind of see that really kind of being the cause or, or at least a, a mechanism kind of pushing people to start thinking about these things again? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a really interesting thing. So obviously this book, uh, well, The the God Delusion in particular, came out in 2006, which wasn't too far after, obviously, the tragic events of 9-11. And obviously Richard Dawkins had been spouting this kind of anti-religion you know, narrative for for a long time. And you can see a little bit in River Out of Eden and some of his earlier works, The, the Selfish de- Gene. Um, but what I think was really interesting about the events in 9-11 was in some ways it sort of brought into the mainstream some of the arguments that these sort of niche scientists or philosophers or theologians had been thinking. And it, it suddenly sort of gave credence, I suppose, to, to one of their big arguments was look at all the ill that religion mm-hmm. is causing. But I think it's really interesting what you're saying there because that was 2006. I think it was 2009. I think it started in January 2009. Um, you may not have been aware of it, but it was huge, particularly in London where I live and in Oxford where I studied. They had... Um, the New Atheist Movement um, paid for a big bus campaign and it said right. on the size of bus. I think Justin Bradley might have talked about this. Um, yeah, I've heard it a few day. times. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there's probably no God. So stop worrying and enjoy your life or something. It said like that. And actually quite a lot of Christians got behind that campaign and and paid to kind of help fund that campaign. <laughs> and I think it's really interesting and I totally get it because actually it just means that God is back on the agenda. In some ways, I think where we're at now, particularly with my friends, with millennials and a lot of the young people that I work with, Gen Zers, Gen Zers, um, it's actually, it's apathy that I don't, I don't yeah. even care about this. It's not even on my re- it. Whereas new atheism definitely put God on the map. People were talking about it. Um, you know, people were angry at a God that didn't exist or whatever. So then there was a conversation and in some ways actually talking about someone who you hate or you don't like, or you don't think exists is a lot easier to do in some ways than, oh, that's true for you, but it's not true for me. That's just your truth. Like that's, I think, much harder to engage with. 
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, it, and I thought that was really fascinating. I think I heard Alistair McGrath talk about that in one of the mm-hmm. shows he did on this book where it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, there were Christians that paid for this yeah. promotion and say, there's probably right. no God. Uh, because again, it got people thinking about God in that sense. And so there's, there's value to kind of just kind yeah. of sparking this conversation again. And so, you know, that even triggers my mind of like, you know, what are ways that we kind of spark the conversation in people and kind of get them starting to think about God again, because that's kind of one of the first steps is if we can start thinking about God, then we can start discussing him more fully and thinking about the truth. But as you mentioned, with the apathy that many people have, it's just kind of a hard start to begin with. Now, a lot of these stories kind of um, begin with, hey, I found the God delusion reasonable and rational and and it made sense of what I was maybe experiencing. Some of the stories seems like uh, people grew up as Christians and then kind of walked mm-hmm. away from the faith. Others maybe just grew up in non-religious homes, but still kind of found an identity within new atheism. So I'm kind of curious if uh, you kind of had to summarize maybe some of these or, or what are some similarities? What did they find kind of attractive or convincing or what resonated with them when it came to the arguments from Dawkins and the other new atheists. Yeah. I mean, I've got a copy of um, The God's Illusion here. It's massive, so I'm not going to summarise the whole book. But <laughs> I, I think I think Alistair actually summarised it into three points in the show that, uh, that I did with him recently. And he highlighted three points, which I think in, in many ways summarises a lot of these stories. One was that um, Christianity and religion in general is kind of blind faith, that it's um, you know, like there's, there's reason and there's arguments for science. But actually, when you're talking about religion, there's, there's no evidence. It's completely evidence-less. It's um, it's blind faith was the phrase they used a lot. Uh, and the second point was that actually, again, I've talked about this a little bit with the 9-11 thing, that religion leads to violence. Um, all of the reasons that we have wars, any bad stuff in the world is religion. You know, religion is the root of all evil. So that's the second point. And then the third one was, again, and it kind of runs through the whole lot, that actually science and religion are incompatible. So if you are anyway a thinking person and you consider yourself in any way scientific, that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to be a scientist, but you could not possibly be a Christian. And I think that, in my opinion, I don't know whether it's because I live in London, which is particularly secular, um, but that seems to be the one that has really been prevailing. I feel like not everyone thinks that religion is the cause of all evil. I think perhaps not everyone thinks that Christianity is a blind faith. I mean, lots of people do, but I think the science religion thing is a huge thing. That that idea that actually you could not possibly be a Christian and a scientist or even think scientifically and be Christian. The two are just totally at odds. Yeah. And it's amazing how each one of these three really does kind of poke his head at different times. And so maybe if we mm-hmm. can kind of walk through these, because even the first one, the blind faith idea, I just had an Instagram live where I discussed this because a former student of mine is a freshman at um, UC Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley, and he's sitting in, it was like oceanography or, or bio biosphere class, like completely irrelevant to religious conversation. And the professor was talking about logical fallacies and said, and ended by saying, um, knowledge obtained by science is at the far opposite end of the spectrum from knowledge obtained by faith and belief. And so this student of mine, uh, writes me and says, Hey, this is what my professor just said. (laughs) What do you think about this? And so I did kind of a a conversation on Instagram live, but it seems like this idea of like that the Christians just simply believe in a blind faith. Um, and that being the opposite of this knowledge-based faith, this evidence-based faith, or I wouldn't use the word faith, but evidence-based knowledge from science mm-hmm. are these complete opposites. So I'm kind of curious, how how would you kind of go about that if someone presented the same thing to you and was like, hey, th- these are at opposite ends. How would you go to responding to this idea that faith is just blind and there's reason in science? I mean, I think it's really interesting. I guess I would talk about the fact that 
for so many people, Alison McGrath is a perfect example. Actually, their conversion, if, if you want to call it that, their, their journey from atheism to theism was an entirely intellectual journey. And for Alistair McGrath, it was that all of these evidences stacked up and even C.S. Lewis. So obviously I present the C.S. Lewis podcast as another one. You know, he famously yeah. called himself the most reluctant convert in all yeah. of England. And I just think actually he was desperate for Christianity not to be true, but actually all the evidence stacked up against his wanting, against his belief, if you want to call it that, you know, his blind faith wanted it to not be true, but actually the evidence stacked up against it and he couldn't, couldn't not believe. So I guess I would perhaps point out some of the evidences, if you want to call it that, for Christianity. And I don't actually personally think there is a knockdown argument for belief in God. I think it's kind of a culmination of, of a series of lots of different things. Right. And then I guess I would tell my own personal story, which I think that has got to account for something. It's not, again, it's not a knockdown argument, but it's someone's story of why they believe and the reasons that have been most compelling for them. And then I guess the, the other thing to say is that um, for a lot of my friends who don't believe that you can be a Christian and a scientist, actually introducing them to people like Alistair McGrath, John Lennox, Dennis Alexander, all of these incredible scientists who are Christians, that in itself kind of speaks, it, it's got this like inherent um, proof within it, this, this inherent authority because they are speaking as Christian scientists. And actually what I think is really interesting is quite a lot of those 12 stories, they are scientists, even if they're no longer, you know, no longer practicing scientists now, they, they have a scientific background. And for a lot of them, it was the intellectual objections to Christianity that sort of started them towards the new atheist movement. Yeah. And so it was that kind of scientific thinking. And so I think it's, it's probably a combination of talking about those evidences and showing that it's not actually blind faith, that there are reasons to believe what, you know, whether you think particular ones are more compelling than others, there are reasons to believe that yeah. Christianity is true, but also there are Christian, there are many, many Christians who are scientists, many, many scientists who are yeah. Christians. And that in itself is in, in some, it's not everything, but in some ways that yeah. is a proof that you can be a Christian and a scientist. Yeah. yeah. And and here you have Richard Dawkins just in, and I forget what book, but he defines it as, you know, faith being belief without any evidence. Right. And I love the famous interview that, or uh, debate that he has with John Lennox, where he goes, faith is without evidence. And John Lennox goes, do you have faith in your wife? And he goes, oh yes, of mm -hmm. course. He goes, is there any evidence? He goes, oh, plenty of evidence. And then the audience just erupts in laughter because we recognize uh, we, we can't have an evidence-based faith. And that's what scripture, Hebrews chapter one and other passages kind of point to. And I love John Lennox. He's, uh, I named my son Lennox after him. Um, but, uh, you know, it's again, like, and, and maybe we'll get to this or we'll jump, just jump ahead and kind of what my train of thought is now. But I love the, the quote, John Lennox uh, mentioned this on my show when I interviewed him, but when he was um, in a conversation with like a Nobel prize winning scientist. And he said, Hey John, do you want uh, a career in the sciences? And he goes, yes, I do. And he goes, well, then you have to give up this silly faith. And his response is, well, what do you have to offer me? That's better. Yeah. And, and I think that's, that's another kind of really big thing that I drew from some of these stories is, is what does this worldview of new atheism, what does this idea kind of give offer you versus what does Christianity offer? And that's what one of the stories, and maybe you can share a little bit about the story, the interview that you did where, you know, she just, uh, uh, Sarah, right? Um, right. I didn't write the name down. Sarah was just like, 
I started realizing like this didn't satisfy what I believed to be true. It didn't provide a, a story for a foundation for what I recognized to be true. And, and it was actually this idea of her understanding of, of morality and, and, and value and, and equal mm-hmm. human value that really led her away from new atheism to Christianity. And so uh, are there any kind of details in that story kind of the, to share of kind of really kind of how this makes sense of what we experience yeah. and really Christianity offers us something better? Yeah, I think Sarah is so interesting because so she's a professor of history in Australia and she came to Oxford and Cambridge on a scholarship. I mean, she has like mega, mega brain, grew up in an atheist family, but was always encouraged to think for herself. Her dad was a, um, was a professor as well. And her sort of first foray into thinking, or maybe there's something in this Christianity thing. She'd grown up in the kind of wake of new atheism, that assumption that science and religion could not go together. And she started studying the, you know, the early scientists. Um, Robert Hooke and um, and Robert Boyle and and basically realised that they were Christians and they were scientists. The you know the fathers of of scientists uh, of science and um, and and she basically came to realise that not only did they just happen to be Christians and scientists, the two were like meshed together so clearly in their mind. And so actually the the, the whole kind of experimental scientific method was kind of predicated on their Christian worldview. The reason they did science was because they were Christians. So from a kind of academic perspective, she saw this whole, um, you know, Christianity and, and, and theism not fitting together, like tumbling away from her because all of these like very famous Christian, uh, very famous scientists that she was studying were Christians. So that was one part of her discovery. The second thing was around morality, as you say. And, um, She'd always believed in like inherent human rights that everyone was created equal. Well, not created; she didn't believe in creation, but but everyone was equal, and right. they had the right to the same rights as everyone else. And then she encountered once she was at Oxford University, Peter Singer, who's an Australian um, a philosopher, ethicist, and he basically said that the idea of kind of human rights and universal rights is actually a Christian myth. And he basically kind of debunked the fact he was like, you you can believe in rights, but you kind of have no grounding to do that unless you have this this myth of, of sort of Christian morality. And yeah. she basically came to see that actually everything she had held dear was predicated upon a Judeo-Christian viewpoint and that actually in order to believe what she believed, she really had to kind of take on board the Judeo-Christian worldview. And so that, again, was like a real, oh, goodness me, what's going on? You know, at, at no point was she, she, she was still an atheist at this point, she's sort of moving right. towards agnosticism. And then as you say, the final nail in her kind of atheistic coffin was this question of meaning. And she basically, you know, she'd lived this amazing life where she'd got her PhD, she'd written a book that became a bestseller. She was a professor at a very, great university. She kind of ticked all of the boxes by, I don't know, her mid twenties, late twenties. And, and yet she was left with this, like, there's got to be more to life than this. And I feel like that's where a lot of people come to question beliefs and question everything that's going on. But when they get to the point of, it's often either in the real highs or the real lows where, you know, in some ways everything is kind of pulled, the rug is pulled from under your feet and you think there has got to be more. Life just can't be just this. And so that was, that was kind of the third thing for her and this sense of there's got to be more than this. And that's when she, um, as an agnostic, still sort of stumbled into a church and was basically moved, really moved to the core by Christian worship and, um, and the, you know, the, the sacraments and, and this, 
this kind of, in her words, like strange thing that she'd never really encountered, but, but, and she found herself in sort of floods of tears. So I think for her, it was, it was a very intellectual journey to start with. And then it kind of moved into actually becoming an emotional, spiritual experience um, towards the end of her journey. So yeah, she's fascinating. Yeah. Really interesting. Yeah. No, that was such an interesting story, uh, hearing her kind of share her journey, you know, and, but it it also kind of reminds me and kind of what I'm asking too, is that, I think maybe what was a part of new atheism is this idea of like, I just simply lack a belief um, rather than Mm -hmm. going out. And maybe there's a little bit more like, um, you know, what you see online today, even it's not like I'm an atheist. I'm saying there is no God. I'm just saying, no, I just lack a belief in God. And so this idea of like simply just trying to dismantle religion, show problems in religion. I don't have any beliefs. I just don't believe what you believe. I just believe in one God last sort of thing. Um, It doesn't construct its own picture of reality. And, and so then you have these individuals who have this understanding of reality, but this thing that they believe in can't support it because it hasn't constructed anything. It's just kind of only been attacked, so to speak. Um, and so it seems like that was maybe one of the downsides of mm-hmm. kind of this new atheist movement is not constructing something to replace and make sense of these deep feelings and experiences that humans have. Would you, would that, would you kind of agree with that? Yeah, I think that's probably true. I think it probably was known more for what it was against than what it was for. And I think um, Alex in in the show that I did with him, Alex O'Connor, who's this wonderful, um, amazing young atheist who um, yeah. is just so open to conversations. And and um, he just said lots of really interesting things in the show. And one of the things, um, I, th- I wrote it down actually, because I thought it was really interesting what he said. He said, one of the easiest things about being a new atheist is that you're, he's not a new atheist, but he's kind of talking right. about the new atheist. One of the easiest things about being a new atheist is that your task a lot of the time is actually just poking holes in other people's views. And that's a much easier task than erecting your, your own worldview in its place. And I think he kind of yeah, I think he sort of summarizes actually what a lot of new atheism was about. It it was largely critiquing cri- the Christian worldview, religious worldviews. It wasn't necessarily erecting something in its place. And I suppose in some ways that was perhaps the appeal because whatever your framework was, you could you could put your own views onto that. But I think the the danger of that is that actually people don't really like a vacuum. There's always, you know, once something disappears, something is right. always going to jump up in its in its place and so that's why i think you know however nearly nearly 20 years later we find ourselves in a position where actually people like alastair mcgrath would say that actually new atheism really has kind of imploded and yeah. we've got people like tom holland the british historian and jordan peterson canadian um psychologist who actually are kind of they're not Christians. They wouldn't call themselves Christians, but they're talking about the the pros of the Judeo-Christian worldview. And people are really kind of engaging with these ideas. And in some ways, I mean, it's what Justin was talking about in his book, the amazing rebirth of belief in God that actually in the absence of a prevailing atheistic worldview, people are beginning to see that perhaps there was beauty, there was, there was truth, there was hope. Yeah. within the Judeo-Christian worldview. And I think for me, that was kind of what came across in the book. And I think I love hearing stories of people that went from atheism to theism, um, uh, to belief in God, to belief in Jesus. Because for me, I think so often, so key to the story is hope. And I think that's mm-hmm. what, you know, we're coming up to Chris- we're coming up to Christmas and, and I flipping yeah. love Christmas largely because actually <laughs> for me, it's 
it's an amazing story of hope that in the midst of darkness, our God didn't want to stay distant, but he came as a vulnerable baby, as a baby who suffered, who, who died, who experienced everything that we experienced. And, and, you know, the, there's a reason the shortest verse in the Bible is Jesus wept, I think, because that is just such a beautiful picture of, of the God of hope that shows us that this is not what life is meant to be like, and it's not going to yeah. be like this forever. So I think, yeah, integral to a lot of this stuff. Yes, there's those intellectual grappling and, and beginning to kind of unpick that some of the arguments within new atheism but for a lot of it the thread that flows through is jesus and and hope being a person not just a kind of nebulous thing that you can't take hold of yeah yeah and i don't remember if it was with your interview with peter or with sarah but this i idea communicated of like hey now that you know clearly because of all this work, religion is false and there is no higher authority. Now I really am the own authority in my life and I just going to make my own meeting and I get to make my mm-hmm. own purpose and I get to make my own stuff. Like how awesome is that? Uh, only to very quickly kind of go like, man, all the things that I thought were going to fulfill me. And Sarah talked about, you know, I got my degrees yeah. and by mid 25 and as you just shared, but I'm not satisfied. I'm not fulfilled. I, I'm not feeling purposeful. And this understanding of like, I, I thought it, I would feel great making my own mm-hmm. path but I don't, it's just not deeply satisfying. And they found that satisfaction in Christianity. Yeah. And so, yeah, there is this kind of idea that it's interesting of like, Hey, I get to cast this off. Now I'm also kind of, uh, well, uh, you mentioned this idea of like, you know, people talking about, you know, atheism, uh, new atheism having kind of imploded. And and Mm -hmm. and I've thought about this too, because I, I saw Richard Dawkins, I I don't know if it's his newest book, but newer book, um, outgrowing God Mm -hmm. at the library. And I was like, well, hey, here's the children. Yeah, it's aimed at children. It's in the library. Let me grab a copy and I'll and I'll go through it. And then I'll like create a series of shows or whatever responding to it. And as I read it, I'm like, I would feel I I feel bad responding to this because the arguments are so bad. And you have a lot of atheists, some of which even wrote endorsements for this book coming to faith through Dawkins, where like the 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 arguments and the reason of Dawkins just just is just terrible. And I felt like if I respond to it, people are gonna be like Ryan, why are you going after low hanging fruit? Like, like everyone, we all like us as atheists, we recognize these are terrible arguments. Don't address it. But the fact is, is they're being shared in culture. And so there's a need to kind of address them in some way. And so Mm. kind of, I'm I'm curious if you've kind of also experienced like what are other atheists like an Alex O'Connor or, or others um, response to Dawkins or how are they viewing Dawkins as often the face of atheism? Mm. Well, it's interesting. I mean, someone like Alex, I think probably there's, there's on the one hand, there's Dawkins arguments. And I think you can pick holes in quite a lot of his arguments and Alex probably would as well. But I mean, Alex is a philosopher and a theologian, so he's got a lot more training than Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins doesn't pretend to be a theologian, but he also seems to have a little bit of a disdain towards theologians, which I'm not sure is particularly helpful when you are talking Mm. about theology. Um, so, so there's that, but I also think for, for people like Alex, Alex is so, kind and gracious in his tone. And that is something that for so many of the people in coming to faith through Dawkins, it was actually the tone of new atheism, particularly Richard Dawkins, that um, that began to kind of unravel their 
yeah, their kind of belief in new atheism. And particularly a lot of people that maybe saw debates, you know, we've mentioned how, how much we love John Lennox and everyone wants him to be their, their granddad. Um, the, <laughs> you know, it, it, like the tone, when you look at a debate between like Richard Dawkins and John Lennox, John yeah. Lennox is just so kind and really gracious and like, yeah, you know, he gives as good as he gets from a kind of academic perspective. But the, I think the tone was a huge thing for a lot of the Christians was that, and just so angry, so dismissive of people's opinions. Um, so like just b- banging home the same point over and over again, even if someone would come back with like new evidence, his refusal to debate someone like William Lane Craig, just this kind of arrogance of like, no, I'm right. I don't need to argue my point. And so I think for a lot of people, it was, it was not necessarily just the content. It was the way in which it was presented. Yeah. And I think, and Christians are absolutely guilty of that as well. Let me just be clear. Um, I'm kind of known in our office for the catchphrase, Christians are idiots, because, you know, there are so many (laughs) things that Christians say and the way that we say it, that is completely unhelpful and is actually, you know, a real barrier to people. So I think, I mean, that's one thing we can definitely learn from people like Richard Dawkins is it's not just what we say, it's also how we say it and and the way that we present it. And I think that's what I really loved about the show that I did with Alex O'Connor, who's, you know, very staunch atheist and Alison McGrath, who's a Christian, was they were so kind to each other. It was such a civil discourse. And that's what I love about the show that I work on, Unbelievable. We kind of bring people with very opposing opinions. And the whole idea is that actually we're going to have rational discussion. We're going to talk about this civilly. Right. Well, yeah, and maybe I'll take this opportunity to do a quick little plug because uh, this coming Sunday night at 530, if you live in the North Orange County, Southern California area, this coming Sunday night at 530 at my church, we're doing our last training event of the year with my doctoral professor on how to have better conversations that often our communication climate, Christians included, can be toxic, polarizing, unloving. And as Christians, we are called to have conversations with people, but communicate in a way that upholds their dignity and the fact that they're created in the image of God. And so we're going to be having a conversation on how to deepen our convictions, but then share them in a more compelling and winsome way. And so if you're in California, that is available to you. But I I, I wanted to hit that point as well mm-hmm. um, because, yeah, I think that's something that we as Christians need to hear and learn mm-hmm. is that when we see this and go, wow, there, there, there's something in our evangelism that we have to be able to marry. And we always talk about truth and love but then we often say, well, the loving thing is just to speak truth. <laughs> and it's like, and therefore here's, here's the truth. And I'm loving you by just saying what's true. Um, mm. And we have to learn how or figure out the way in which we present and communicate yeah. is also hugely important. Um, and so that, that's yeah. important to kind of learn from these stories. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, obviously, apologists love to throw around, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. And I think they quite often leave it at that. They're like, be ready, be ready. Here are all your your arguments. And I think this, this, uh, you know, the verse carries on. It says, but do this with gentleness and respect. And I think there's so many other parts of that verse. Always be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. So like, really, we should be honing in on that hope. The fact that like, actually, there is a hope. There's a hope for all of us. Um, I also think always be ready to give an answer it implies that someone is asking a question. And so often we just kind of give all this stuff even if someone has not asked a question, uh, but then that gentleness and respect that actually that has got to be the way that we do it. And I think, I think it was um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said that your life as a Christian should make non-believers question their disbelief. And I think actually, if we are living such lives that provoke people to ask questions, then in some ways, what we say is almost 
it is it is important, but it's more important that we're living provocative lives in the first place. And I don't yeah. mean provocative in that, you know, we're I mean provocative in the sense that people are like, whoa, what's different about you? Like actually yeah. some of the best conversations I had when I was a student at university was when everyone around me was, you know, getting drunk, whatever. And I was just having these amazing conversations with people who were like, why are you sober? Why are you not kissing that guy? In the Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. it was because my life looked different that people wanted to talk to me about God. They wouldn't have talked to me about God if I just you know, started a conversation and started preaching at them. It was because my life looked different that they want. And, um, you know, I did not get everything right, just to be clear. But actually, if we are living provocative lives that cause people to question their disbelief, lives that are full of hope, um, even in the midst of real darkness, that our lives are full of hope, actually, people, of course, want a piece of that. Because I think particularly in a kind of post-pandemic world where mental health struggles are through the roof, people are desperate for hope. They're desperate for light. They're desperate to know why we have such a kind of security and where that comes from. Yeah. Yeah. And it just, you know, that is so good and true. And back to kind of where you started as well. I remember telling someone, um, sitting down talking to someone about what I do in my work with Maven and that we train young people in theology, apologetics, and worldview. And then we take them out to do evangelism to, to Mormons, to atheists, skeptics, whoever it may be on college campuses and around the country. And uh, I remember him saying, well, I used to do that with my students, but I found that the more they learn, the more arrogant and just mm-hmm. rude that they became. How do you keep them from getting arrogant? And, and part of that in my answer was like, well, I've had groups that have done that. I had a group of students that that had conversations with like lifelong high up church uh, uh, leaders in the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and then came back and was like, they don't know what they're talking about. Oh, we just completely demolished them, blah, blah, blah. And I just went like, oh, why? And there was like, why Why do they think that they just had to sit there and explain everything to us? Like we didn't know anything. And I, and I remember stopping the student and just saying like, how long have you been studying Mormonism? <laughs> you know, three months. How have you read the whole Book of Mormon? No, and you don't think you have anything to learn from someone who's been a Mormon for fifty years. Um, and I remember kind of putting them into place, and then the youth pastor came up and just said, "Thank you so much for doing that." And I think that's where there's a value to to us at Maven and, and our field guides and, and our team that come along students to help shape them because there's there's knowledge, but if there's not maturity with how to mm. handle that knowledge, it often gets misused yeah. and, and can be used to kind of beat people up. And so there's such a value in in in, in Christian role models and, and leaders that can kind of come along students um, and and help them see how to use it well. And, mm-hmm. and, and, um, and not in this kind of way. Um, now I'm, I'm also kind of curious as, as you kind of address this, how much have you seen, I don't know, I'm curious how the church is different on, on your side of the ocean versus here, but how much have you seen these ideas kind of infiltrating Christians as far as Christians believing science and faith are incompatible or religion leads to violence or bl- like faith is supposed, supposed to be blind. Is this, mm. have these new atheist ideas kind of stuck around inside of the church? Have you kind of seen generally, no, we recognize these are are false ideas? Yeah, it's really interesting. I think probably in some ways we're slightly more, England as a whole is slightly further like further into the kind of secularization than you are in the States. Obviously there are pockets of of the United States that are, look a bit more secular, look a bit more like England. So I think that has a sort of in, in, in many ways infiltrated into the church. Um, and I wonder if because of that, the church has become a little bit more insular, like the, you know, there's the non-Christians out there. We need to sort of stay within our bubble. Cause I remember when I was um, like, 
when I was first starting out in youth work, people would literally say to my young people, oh, you leave your brains at the door. And I was like, uh, whoa, 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 whoa. No, you do not leave your brains at the door. Like you come with your questions. And if, if God is big enough, then we believe that actually he can respond to all of our questions. We might not know all the answers, but actually we are told to, to bring our questions, to bring all of our emotions to God, to, yeah, to grapple with it, to, you know, we're told in Jude to be merciful to those who doubt. And so for sure, the kind of blind faith thing was definitely a huge thing, particularly in youth work when I was working in youth work was, um, oh, let's just play games and let's, let's just, and let's just trust God, not even like trust God despite our questions, but let's just like get rid of our questions and just trust God. And um, I think that's changing. I think the youth work world is actually understanding that it's really important um, to be doing apologetics and to be answering questions and engaging with young people's doubts. Um, Particularly, and I know, again, the stats are way worse in the UK than they are in the US, but the amount of people who leave the faith when they hit 18 or uh, actually in the UK, it's much younger. It's kind of 14 to 16. That's when we see a huge drop off of young people um, it's kind of when parents basically say, come to church if you want to. And they're like, oh, cool. No, thanks. So I think, you know, the, the kind of blind faith thing is, is definitely a thing. I think the science and faith thing is is definitely a thing as well. I mean, I, obviously there are Christians within um, churches who are scientists and they would probably think that the two are compatible. But there is certainly, um, I think, a nervousness around some Christians in the UK church who are, oh, no, I couldn't possibly um, believe in evolution or I couldn't believe in you know, certain scientific theories because it's the Bible, the Bible, the Bible. And, and so, you know, obviously it depends on your interpretation and, and, right. and things like that, but, but that's definitely um, sort of seeped into the church as well. Um, and then what I've forgotten the third thing, what was the third thing? Oh, that like religion being bad. Oh yeah. 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 I guess probably Christians are not as kind of down Only with that, that one. But uh, but uh, in in many ways, actually, I think in in some ways, actually, we probably need to just own that. And I yeah. think um, obviously the kind of new atheist um, perspective that religion ruins everything. I think was it Christopher Hitchens who said that religion poisons everything. I think that's clearly not true. And actually, if you look at you know some of the stuff that was done in the name of atheism, you know they've also got to own that. But I think it's really important that actually we do own the damage that Christianity has done to people, to certain groups of people. I think it's really important that we own that and that we apologize. And we say that actually that is not Jesus. That's us messing up in the name of Jesus. And that's not the same thing. So, you know, I'm sure you're also going through this, the whole um, kind of LGBTQ rights and things like that. I think it's really important that as Christians, we apologize to the way that we've treated the homosexual community in the past and own that and love them through everything that they're going through now. And so I think, yeah, I think the whole kind of religion causing pain is probably, we've probably, we're probably yeah. ignoring that to a certain extent. And I think it's time to own it and to apologize and to move forward and to show that actually we are communities of grace and love and healing and of course, holiness, but yeah. you know, within the context of love. Yeah. And it's amazing. You know, I just, uh, uh, I'm actually probably going to be talking about it here on the show at the end of November, but um, I just finished my my year one doctoral research on a theology of the body and transgenderism. And so part of that research, I read a ton of testimonies and stories mm-hmm. from transgender individuals uh, and a lot of them 
telling their story of being in churches and some of the things yeah. that individuals in churches said to them. And, and, yeah. and then I also kind of got into this research because when I was first asked to speak on gender and I would tell Christians what I was researching, I got some pretty negative shallow, harsh comments back of like, mm. oh, why study that? And this kind of kind of flippant comments. And it's like, wow, mm. we we need to do better. And, and I recognize, yeah. obviously, with all stories, that this isn't true of everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are stories where churches really did come alongside in a beautiful, wonderful way mm-hmm. and and welcomed and, and, and loved people through whatever it is that they have. But um, it, it's just there, there definitely needs to be kind of improvement in how we address mm-hmm. these issues from God's perspective, for sure. Yeah. Um, now, yeah, it's interesting you, you mentioned. Uh, students walking away from the faith. And I just shared this at a big church uh, in Northern California of, of the same statistic is true here. The difference though, it sounds like mm-hmm. you said, uh, you know, there's a lot of parents that say, Hey, if you want to come to church, you know, mm-hmm. and then that's where the students drop out. Uh, what it seems to be true here, what studies seem to be showing is that we often say, Oh, students walk away from the faith when they are 18 and, and go off to college. Yeah. And, and reality it's like, no, but student, when did you start Mm -hmm. to lose your faith? When did you Mm -hmm. actually walk away? And here as well, it's about 15, Um, but they just continue to go through the motions while they're still under the parents' home. And so it's like, parents, your kids possibly are walking away and they're not believing while they still live under your roof and we're unaware because the kid is still going through the motions. It's not till Mm -hmm. they have that freedom, go off to college and they've officially leave the church. And so that is important to to recognize. and then I, I wonder as well, the kind of the church in your area, when you when we talk about science and religion, because one of the things I think is that if the church isn't addressing these issues, um, then yeah, maybe there are some Christians that are scientists, but the kids are sitting in classes and school where they're learning all these scientific facts and their teachers are saying how these things contradict Christianity. Or even if the teacher isn't saying that, it's just assumed that, you know, if you're a young earth creationist and everything is millions and billions of years old, then this is a contradiction. And if the church and youth groups are not addressing these issues, then mm-hmm. we are allowing our students to assume there's a contradiction when when there's not. And so I'm curious kind of maybe in, in where you're at, and kind of being as slightly ahead of us so in one sense or whatever you want to kind of call it. Um, uh, has the church responded in, in addressing these issues to helping young people see there's not a contradiction to answer these questions? Mm-hmm. Or is, this still, is the church still kind of slow to really kind of doing apologetics and working with students in this way? I would love to say yes. Um, but, and of course there are, there are ministries in the UK and there are, um, there are churches doing this for sure. But I would say the vast majority of churches, no, no, they're not doing that. And I think, um, again, it's kind of this fear of like, oh gosh, we couldn't possibly bring up all of these questions because what if we're putting questions in their head that they didn't even have in the first place? And my argument to that is always like, they've got the question. Someone is doing apologetics with your children. It's yeah. probably the kid in the playground. It's their atheist teacher. Why are we not doing it? And I think it's interesting that you say um, that in the States, people are maybe going through the motions, um, but they're still going to church. And I think all of the research, it's certainly in a UK context, shows that actually parents are terrified about doing faith at home. They just don't know how to do it. They don't know how to approach the big questions. So they leave it to the professionals in inverted commas, which basically means, I don't know, half an hour, an hour, once a week on a Sunday. Like that's not enough when the rest of their worldview is being constantly kind of bombarded by a particularly in the UK, a very kind of secular agenda. And so I think actually part of our role as pastors is to inspire and equip 
and give confidence to parents that you do not need to know all of the answers, but you've got to be willing to engage. You've got to be a safe place where young people will come to you first with those questions. So, you know, maybe they're studying that stuff in science or sex education or whatever it is. You want, you want to be the safe place for them to go to. You don't want them to be kind of asking these questions to their atheist pals or whatever. You want them to be coming to you. You want them to be coming to your youth worker, whatever. And, and knowing that it's okay to ask those questions. It's okay to grapple. It's okay yeah. to not have all the answers. And I think it's so important for us to understand that the necessity to be humble and to say, I don't know when we don't know, like there will be stuff we don't know. And that's a great opportunity for you to journey alongside your young people, your children, you know, whether that's your own young people or the young people within your kind of church community and to learn together some of this stuff. And and we still might know the, might not know the answer at the end of it because some stuff yeah. is just really complicated and really difficult and we don't know. Um, but actually you probably will learn a huge amount over the journey and you probably will get a lot closer to your child, to your young person that you're mentoring in that process. And I think that's a really powerful thing. Yeah, absolutely. That is so powerful. And I think it's also so important to to point out that, that as you said, you know, we, the parents often go, I'm going to send them off to the expert. Uh, mm-hmm. In my research, I talked to and I interviewed Christian school teachers and youth pastors and youth workers to say like, okay, if, if you are the people that are directly working with students, if you're a teacher every single day, if you're a youth worker mm-hmm. a few times a week, and you're supposed to be the person that the student is going to with their religious faith-based questions, how confident do you feel in addressing some of these issues? And and how do you go about addressing these issues? And I had one youth pastor of a huge church here in the United States pretty much say, look, I, I can't because I'm, mm-hmm. I'm so busy planning events and planning retreats and organizing leaders and getting small group discussions together that I don't have time to read on transgenderism and sexuality and mm-hmm. cultural issues. I, I I can't equip myself in those areas to then address it well. And he goes, so I'm thankful for people like you that do take the time to do it. But I just think, you know, that's why it's so important that to for all of us to kind of recognize from parents to mm-hmm. youth workers, to apologists, to whoever it is, like we often say, oh, I'm sending them off to... Um, to to uh, uh, to the expert, but then often these youth workers are so overwhelmed. Teachers are yeah. so overwhelmed with their professional development and planning and writing mm-hmm. lesson plans and just teaching their content that they don't really have time to equip themselves well in these areas to be able to answer the students' questions. And so yeah. it's just important for us all to kind of recognize that. And then how do we come alongside and help equip each other where we are doing well, I think is so, so important. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what would you say kind of as, and we've kind of been hinting at this a lot of different ways, but maybe to be more specific is uh, what are some things that people are, are that we can learn from these different stories when it comes to our own evangelism and cultural engagement? What, what are some principles that maybe we can apply to say, Hey, this can help us better as we try to engage those around us? Yeah. I mean, I think it's really interesting. I think Making faith relevant is a really important thing because I think for a lot of the people, the the kind of the falling down of the new atheist perspective was partly the content, it was partly arguments, but a lot of it was that it just did not, it didn't speak to them as people. And so I think actually we need to show people that Christianity is relevant to their lives. Mm. It does speak into those issues that they're grappling with. It 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 brings hope to a young person who's struggling with mental health um, complications. You know, it, it it speaks into their lives. Uh, and so I think part of it is that we need to show that that faith is relevant. I think as well for a lot of these people, yes, there was kind of an intellectual journey, but there was also 
however they describe it, some sort of encounter, some sort of personal encounter with God. And so I wonder if actually part of it is praying for and believing for and helping people to encounter God in a tangible way. Mm. Um, I guess that kind of comes back to kind of making faith relevant. But I, I do think it comes back down to, again, actually living lives that are really provocative that show people that there is something different about us because yes yes there is power in preaching and doing apologetics but but you've got to get someone to the place where they're going to be listening to people like you or preachers and and actually for a lot of people it will just be a friend that has invited them to something or a friend that has had a conversation with them and so i think for a lot of for a lot of people it is it is about just journeying with them. And yes, you may not be equipped with all the apologetic answers, but you probably know a lot more than you think you know. And yeah. actually, again, that kind of that, that, um, the posture of humility of, I don't know, but here is why I believe. I think, you know, Revelation says we overcome by the power of our testimony and his word the, and the blood of the lamb. And I think that those three things are just so brilliant. The power of our testimony, the word and the blood of the lamb, like Jesus. And I, and I think we forget sometimes the power of our testimony, regardless of what that looks like. Yet, yeah, like maybe it was you grew up in the church, but there must have been a moment where it kind of became your own, where you grappled with why you believe, or, or maybe you were a total atheist. And actually, these are some of the things that helped you to believe. And I think actually telling our own story, again, it's not knockdown evidence, but it is, it's your personal story and people really respect stories. We're storytelling people, aren't we? And I think, yes, some people like Alison McGrath will respond to arguments, but actually a lot of people will respond to, here's my story. This is why I believe. This is why I think there is hope. Um, So like, I think that can be a really powerful thing, particularly when we're talking to young people. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm curious, I've been thinking about this for a little bit after I was, uh, I was asked, um, I mean, when was that month and a half ago? I don't know, uh, to, to give a talk on standing strong for the faith. And, um, so I kind of really kind of thought through like, what, why is it that we don't stand strong for the faith? And, and at least kind of the conclusion I come to, and I'm curious if you have anything to add to this or agree or disagree, but I think one of the things is, is, well, first of all, when we look at like the early church part of, part of my research I was doing uh, earlier was kind of looking at first century church and kind of what made Christians stand out. And really they had this new kind of faith. They only worship one God, not a pantheon of gods. And this made the Romans like, what is wrong with you? Like, why would you only worship one God? There's something unique and different there. They also had uh, a new way of life. Uh, they, they believed that what they believed uh, should influence their actions. And they had a different sexual ethic and a different work ethic and a different way in which they love and cared for people. And so there's this new way of life that was also very attractive. They also had a new identity uh, versus, you know, rather than just what you believe is based on where you're born. So if you're born Roman, then you just believe in the Roman gods. Christianity presented this kind of transcultural identity where anyone from any culture of any nationality can be a Christian. Um, And that was also very unique. And so there's these aspects that made Christianity look unique to where scholars estimate that by about year 300 or so, there's about three or so, five million Christians. Uh, It was a very quickly growing thing. And so I wonder like, uh, one, is it possible that, yeah, we, we're not seeing something similar as, similar as what you're saying? Is it that as Christians, our lives are not that much different than our culture? We live a very similar life and it's not wrong to play sports and do that kind of stuff. But if we're doing, if our life looks identical to the non-believing people around us, then there's not this kind of new life, new identity, new, um, new faith that really stands out. And then I also wonder, and here's kind of the last part is, is, um, is possibly one of the reasons for this is because we don't have a deeper knowledge of Christianity. 
that we're scared or worried that if we stand out, if we live different, it will prompt people to ask questions that then we're not prepared to respond to. And so because we actually don't have a deeper knowledge of scripture, of theology, of apologetics, that it's causing us to kind of shy back because we don't want people to ask questions versus the topics that we love and are passionate about and we know about, we're willing to bring those up because if people ask questions, we're, hey, I'll talk all day long about that. Let's go. I'm excited. I'm passionate. And so I wonder if there is a a knowledge component that's lacking that is causing us to not live those lives that are truly set apart and attractive. I don't know. That That's kind of as I'm processing through, I think this might be an aspect of it. I don't know if you have any mm. thoughts or want to add to that, but that's kind of what I'm thinking of the cause of this possibly. Yeah, I think there is. And I think, again, all the research would show that actually people have a very yeah, distinct lack of confidence when it comes to sharing their faith. It's interesting because I also think having studied theology and, you know, done loads of apologetics, I actually think we can know loads about God, but not necessarily know him. And I think actually there is almost the opposite danger that like we can just equip ourselves so much with our head that we kind of forget that actually at the end of the day, I mean, it's a head and a heart thing, but, but it's often a heart thing that really drops for someone, particularly when we're talking to young people. And I think perhaps sometimes, like I do think we should equip ourselves, you know, we're apologists. I think it's really important that we do understand why, you know, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. But I also think it's really important that we are praying, that we are reading the Bible, that we're knowing God, not just knowing about God, because actually then when those questions come, we can we can be drawing upon the source that we are connected to rather than just rely, you know, if I've had to be relying on my own brain, my brain is useless. I've got a two year old. (laughs) So I'm like, I'm getting no sleep. This, you know, my brain is shot. If I'm relying on my brain, I'm useless. Whereas if I'm in a conversation with someone secretly being like, God, come on, please help me. Please help me. Please help me. Take away me. When I'm weak, you're strong. When I'm weak, you're strong. Then actually it's, it's almost like words are coming out of me and I don't even know what I'm saying. And actually that's the power of God in me. And I think we need to trust those words in Zechariah that it's not by might, it's not by power, but by the spirit of God. And so I think actually sometimes it is really important to equip ourselves, but it's also really important, if not more so, well, yeah, definitely more so to be constantly praying into those situations and to be trusting that God will give us the reason. That's not to make us lazy. We don't do it, you know, yeah, at the, um, without, yeah at the expense of learning our stuff. But I do think it's really important that actually we just trust that God right. will take over when we're doing a useless job. Um, yeah. And yeah, and trusting that where we're weak, he is strong. And also trusting on other people. It does take a village to raise a young person. Like, I think it's really important that we say, I really don't know anything about that. I'm mm. not a scientist, but this guy, he's an engineer. Why don't you go and ask him why he yeah. believes that God and science are compatible? Do you know what I mean? Like, I think we yeah. need to not be to draw yeah you're right that we don't want to just be drawing on the experts but i think it's also okay to do that in the context of community as well yeah yeah and i'm relying on coffee over here too i got a two-year-old and a four-month-old so Uh (laughs) similar similar both there but yeah i mean that's it's absolutely true and that's that's one of the things also in that part talk that i talk about is is it it I think standing strong for the faith and what I kind of address is, is it requires you to have a actual relationship with God and relationships mm-hmm. are, are twofold. A relationship has mm-hmm. knowledge, but a relationship also has experience. And I think there's, again, as you're kind of addressing, there's a lot of Christians that have done things with God and they've gone to church and maybe prayed and read their Bible, but they don't have a deep knowledge of God. And so it's lacking just like I can 
play video games with someone. I can go golfing with someone. And I can not even be friends with them. In fact, I don't even have to know their name. I can watch movies with them and not know who they are. At the same time, if you have only knowledge and no experience, it's like your favorite athlete or someone where you know all their stats and everything, but you're still not friends with them. Um, mm-hmm. But if you have something that is true, like maybe a marriage or something like that, I, that's the example that I often use, is there is, I'm doing things with my wife, there's experiences with her, but then there should also be a knowledge of her, where if you ask me to tell you about my wife and I just know how tall she is and what her hair color is, that's a problem. But if you say like, oh, what do you like to do with your wife? I'm like, oh, we never hang out, but I know everything there is to know about her. That's also a problem. Mm. But then when you marry those two together um, and and, and have knowledge with experience that actually develops a deep relationship, then when you start attacking my wife or something, I'm going to stand up and defend. And so there's. There's a now uh, that leads to, I think, passion when those two things kind of come together. And that's exactly what you're talking about is that we can't just go either knowledge or experience. It is how do we blend these together, have a deep relationship with God. And then I think it leads us to be like, I want everyone to know about this. And and this is what I see with students is we take them on trips to kind of blend these together, give them knowledge. And one of the story I I shared from a recent um, trip to Utah uh, which, by the way, if you want to go to, not you, but anyone listening, I mean, uh, and want to go <laughs> well, to Utah, well, college or high school students, sorry, but uh, any yeah. college or high school students want to go to Utah, I'm uh, going to be leading a trip there next July. You can find out more information. Uh, I can give that to you uh, as well. But um in one of my re- most recent Utah trip I was on, I found the student just really nervous and kind of uh, 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 struggling to share his faith and respond to questions. And after a week of talking to Mormons and kind of continuing to go over stuff and through prayer and we do worship and devotions and also this kind of knowledge, um, it then led to him so excited that the trip ends. Most high school students, once your trip is over and you're flying home, then the AirPods, you know, AirPods are going to go mm-hmm. in and you're going to be doing your thing. He's at the airport and I get a picture of him sharing Christ and evangelizing at the airport while they're waiting for their airplane. Yeah. I think that's that's the natural mm. product of someone who has a deep relationship with God, who has a confidence and knowledge of God. And then you just go, I want people to know this. Right. And, and it took him away from, no one's saying, hey, get off your phone and go evangelize. He's just choosing to do it. Yeah. And so it's amazing when you kind of see students come alive in this way. I think it's that John Wesley thing, isn't it? Where he said that um, he asked God to set him on fire and then he goes out and people watch him burn. And I think that's just a really powerful reminder that actually we need to just be constantly asking God to set us on fire because otherwise we're like a flickering, useless flame that no one's going to be drawn to that. Whereas if we're like burning, sure, some people might not like it, but actually people are drawn to fire. They're drawn to something that's different. They're drawn to, and I think, you know, when you see people who have been faithfully loving Jesus their whole life, there's something literally in their faces, isn't there sometimes where you're like, you are actually shining (laughs) and and people see it. And I think if we're genuinely on fire for Jesus, people will be drawn to us. Not because of us, like, because we'll get out the way because it's like it's God burning in us. And I think that's a really, really powerful thing. Yeah, we had a a Unitarian Universalist recently present to one of our groups um, and he pretty much told the students, he goes, you brought Christians uh, are the reason I'm not a Christian. Um, and just the way in which you act and the way in which you speak and the way in which you treat people, you're the reason I'm not a Christian. Mm -hmm. And these students were shocked. They were not expecting that. They were expecting him to make some arguments for Unitarian Universalism, Mm -hmm. and they were going to respond with their arguments for Christianity. And when he just came out and said, you're the reason I'm not a Christian, it was like, wow, that that's not often said, or at least it wasn't said to them. And it really kind of made them pause and stop for a second. Um, 
Awesome. So I'm just kind of curious. Is, uh, we, we've talked, talked about general some stories. Maybe we can finish up with one more story or if there is another one that kind of really sticks out to you is just kind of a, a hope-filled, exciting story to kind of leave people with. Is there one more that kind of comes to mind? Yes, yeah, so this is really interesting. I'm actually going to be interviewing her in a couple of weeks time. So I kind of wish I, I knew a bit more of her story, but she's called Ashley Land. I think her name is. Yeah, Ashley Land. And um, she became a Christian through effectively through psychedelic drugs. So you've got these kind of <laughs> professor, academic, intellectual arguments who sort of then had an encounter. Whereas for her, um, it was a real sort of profound encounter. Obviously, I, I want to sort of delve into like, how do you know it wasn't the drugs? Like, where do you draw the line between Jesus? and drugs. Um, but for her, there, there was something she said, which I thought was really powerful. Again, like coming back to the person of Jesus, she, um, I wrote down what she said. She, yeah. So she found faith through psychological, psychedelic drugs. And she said, I trusted Jesus in a way I had never trusted acid or yoga or meditation because he was a person. And mm -hmm. I think in so many ways that sums up everyone's story in there. What I, what I found fascinating about the God delusion was he, like the whole thing is a tirade against religion, but he very rarely mentions Jesus. Whereas mm -hmm. for, for almost everyone, in this book, like integral to the kind of crux of them becoming a Christian was obviously an encounter with Jesus, an encounter with a person, an encounter with, you know, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and being with us and, and holding us in our pain. And so I think for me, that's why I'm so excited about speaking to Ashley because she tried so many different things, but actually it was Jesus that made such a dramatic difference. And she's years, 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 years sober now. So like Jesus is obviously still making a difference. And I just want to know what her life looks like now compared to what it was. Yeah. Wow, that is so, uh, so amazing and so encouraging. And again, there's this is what we have to share is the hope and the person of Jesus Christ who took on human flesh, who came down, who'd suffered and died for us so that we may be reunited back to God again. I mean, that is the hope that we have to share in the message uh, that this broken world desperately needs. So Ruth, thank you again uh, for taking this time uh, to come on, to share these stories, to talk about youth culture and apologetics with me. I just so appreciate it and love this uh, opportunity to have this conversation with you. Well, and like I said, you need to come on my show now, Ryan. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> All righty. Have a good one. Thank you. All right, everybody. Well, hey, hopefully this conversation was an encouragement to you and we can learn some stuff from this. Again, if you want to check out that book, it is called Coming to Faith Through Dawkins, uh, edited by Alistair McGrath. Uh, just wonderful stories filling that book that hopefully are an encouragement to you. Also coming up, I'm trying to pack a ton of interviews here in the end of the year uh, because my doctoral semester is done. I'm on a two-month break. I start again in uh, January, and so I have a little bit of a break to bring some more interviews to you. So for example, uh, Greg Kokel is going to be coming on November 27 to talk about street I have Ross Anderson, a former Mormon, coming on to talk about responding to Mormon missionaries December 6 at 1 p.m. Greg Gansel, a philosopher, is going to be talking about how Christianity fulfills our deepest desires. That's December 14. And there's also like three or four more that I'm trying to nail down specific dates and times that are also going to be happening. So if you want to be in the know on these shows, you don't want to miss one, uh, you can subscribe, you can like, you can follow, uh, do all that kind of fun stuff to make sure you don't miss these upcoming conversations. I'm also going to be presenting my doctoral research that I did uh, probably November 28 here at the end of the month. So uh, you can like if you want to check out that. You can also share with anybody and kind of get this message out there. Would greatly appreciate that as well as there's a ton of other videos that are going to pop up to help you think deeply about the Christian faith and your cultural engagement. So with that, I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. Continue to think deeply about God, Christianity, and Jesus because they are worth thinking about. See you next time, everybody. Have a good one. I'll try.
won't hesitate to follow. 